Hello and welcome. This episode of the Not Just Paleo podcast is brought to you by Kettle and Fire, a bone broth company who uses organically raised chickens or cattle, and they slow simmer the bones for 24 hours. They use organic veggies. They use sea salt, herbs. You get a great amount of protein, not to mention you're also going to get glycine, glucosamine, calcium, magnesium, phosphorus, potassium, all sorts of other amino acids that are really important for your skin, your hair, your nails, your bones, and for your gut. You know, I use bone broth in my clients as a leaky gut support. Now, obviously, it's not going to do as much as some of the herbs can do. And obviously, if you've got a leaky gut, you've got to get that fixed. If you've got infections, you've got to get that taken care of. Bone broth is not magically going to make all of your problems go away. It's a lot of crazy claims out there, but what it will do is provide a great source of nutrition and a great source of trace minerals into your diet. So get 20% off your first order by going to notjustpaleo.com slash chicken. That's the link for the bone broth that is made of chicken bones, or you can go to notjustpaleo.com slash broth, and that's the beef broth. Let's get into the show with Dr. Eric He is a chiropractor who's branched out into functional medicine. He published the book, Natural Treatment Solutions for Hyperthyroidism and Graves' Disease. He's got several functional medicine certifications. He was just in my friend Isabella Wentz's new thyroid documentary. So enjoy the show. Dr. Eric Osansky, welcome to the show. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yes, sir. Well, we've been chatting off air, having a blast, and I said, you know what, we got to hit this record button because we're having too much fun and people are going to want to know what we're talking about. So um, let's jump right into it with your story, which I just briefly heard just a couple of seconds about. uh, You ended up getting diagnosed with the autoimmune thyroid disease, which we hear about far less than Hashimoto's, which is called Graves' disease. How did you come to that diagnosis? What was going on leading up to that point? All right. Well, it actually all started in a Sam's Club, (laughs) or at least that's when I found out about it. I was walking around in a Sam's Club, and they had one of those automated blood pressure machines. And so just like I had many times previously, I took my blood pressure, and my blood pressure was fine, but my resting heart rate was on the higher side. It was around 90 beats per minute, which was a little high for me. And, you know, I thought maybe it was because I was walking around, uh, even though I've Again, taking it numerous times, and it was never that high when taking it. So, but just like most people probably would do, I would the, the next few days I would monitor my resting heart rate, and it fluctuated anywhere between 90 and 110 beats per minute. And so I, I realized something was wrong. Um, with hyperthyroidism, Graves' disease, weight loss is common, and I was losing a lot of weight, but I was also doing a lot of dieting and detoxification. Um, for a few months prior, so I attributed it to, to the detoxification and the, the dietary changes. Um, but then putting two, two, two and two together uh, with the weight loss, I also had the increased appetite, which again I thought was due to the restricted diet, and then you know the, the increased resting heart rate. Um, and then also as I was paying more attention, had had some heart palpitations, um, so I, long story short, went to a medical doctor, got some blood tests run, uh, specifically a thyroid panel, and as well as some other tests. But the thyroid panel revealed that I had hyperthyroidism, and that was the uh, so that so so I was told I was, had hyperthyroidism. Was told to take a beta blocker, which I didn't take at the time, 
And then a couple of months later, I saw an endocrinologist, and they did some more testing. They did uh, testing for thyroid antibodies, and you know, I had elevated thyroid-stimulating immunoglobulins, which pretty much, along with the hyperthyroidism, confirmed the diagnosis of Graves' disease. And that's how I found out <laughs> that I had um, hyperthyroidism and eventually diagnosed with Graves' disease. Got it. So let me clarify just a little bit. So the TSI number, that was elevated, and then what else was elevated that said, okay, this is Graves? Okay. So so with Graves' disease, you have hyperthyroidism. So uh, how that appeals on a, uh, appears on a thyroid panel is the TSH, the thyroid-stimulating hormone, will actually be depressed, um, usually undetectable, which was the case with me. And then the thyroid hormones, both free T3 and free T4, were elevated. Um, and the thyroid-stimulating immunoglobulins, those are the antibodies associated with Graves. So I had elevated TSI levels, thyroid-stimulating immunoglobulins, elevated thyroid hormone levels, and a depressed TSH. And those combined gave the diagnosis um, for Graves. Now, some, some people with Graves don't, some endocrinologists don't, give uh, or don't some people don't get the antibodies tested but there's also something called the radioactive iodine uptake test which is not the same i know we'll, we'll talk a little bit about radioactive iodine treatment but the radioactive iodine uptake test involves swallowing a small dosage of radioactive iodine um, and it's the goal is not to damage your thyroid gland but it looks at the the uptake of the iodine and you know gives certain patterns and if someone has an elevated uptake um, along with hyperthyroidism, that also usually will result in the diagnosis of Graves' disease. It's not, to me, the, uh, the thyroid-stimulating immunoglobulins, it's more specific, and plus, you, uh, you know, I'd rather someone just get their blood drawn than to take, even if it is a small dosage, I'd prefer for them not to take the radioactive iodine, you know, do the uptake test if at all possible. Got it. Okay, now conventional treatment for this is typically, I've read about like anti-thyroid drugs like the, how do you pronounce it, the methamazole, and then... Yep, methamazole, yep. So then they've got the radioactive iodine, and then they've got surgery. Now, all of those conventional treatment options sound pretty terrible. Uh, yes. Uh, well, I mean, some people do need to take anti-thyroid medication um, or beta blockers, um, sometimes both. So it's not uncommon for, I mean, the the key is to be safe. Um, and, you know, so even though, yes, you want to try to avoid radioactive iodine and surgery, those should be last resorts, you do want to manage the symptoms. And personally, I, I didn't take the methimazole or a beta blocker. Uh, I took uh, some herbs, um, bugleweed. Uh, and again, we could talk more about those, but bugleweed and motherwort were two herbs that I took um, when dealing with Graves' disease. Um, but sometimes people do need to take antithyroid medication. Sometimes the herbs aren't potent enough. Um, or even if I'm working with someone who's already on the antithyroid medication, and if they're doing okay on it, which a lot of people do find, then you know, I'm fine with them taking the medication. I don't tell someone to stop taking it. Um, but there are some risks, like antithyroid medication, like methimazole, does put more stress on the liver. So sometimes you'll have elevated liver enzymes. Um, sometimes it could depress the white blood cell count. Um, sometimes people will just feel bad, and they might it might not be reflective in the blood work, but someone um, might, you know, get like uh, you know skin rashes, for example. Um, so they might have you know like an allergic response to the methimazole. And then there's also PTU is another type of antithyroid medication, which is even harsher on the liver. Uh, as a result, that's why methimazole is 
more frequently given than than PTU, um, but but yeah. So the antithyroid medication, you know, there are some some downsides, but you know, it, it all again, it all comes down to risk versus benefits. And if someone is is you know someone has that elevated heart rate and the palpitations, and if they either don't do well on the herbs, meaning that it doesn't do a good job of managing the symptoms, or as I mentioned, a lot of people don't try the herbs initially, but they're on the medication and they're doing okay on the medication. And, and, you know, the goal either way is to try to improve the health of the immune system since Graves' disease is an immune system condition, not a thyroid condition. So if someone is taking methimazole while we're addressing the cost of the immune system and as long as they're not having a negative reaction to the methimazole, then that's fine. Um, But with regards to radioactive iodine and thyroid surgery, uh, those are extreme methods. And unfortunately, a lot of endocrinologists, uh, especially a lot in the United States, will recommend radioactive iodine as a first line of treatment. Um, so um, again, usually you want that to be, since since this is a, an immune system condition you know, with Graves' disease, it just, to me, never made, made sense to you know, to nuke the thyroid gland or to, you know, remove the thyroid gland because that's not doing anything for the immune system component. And not to say, again, maybe in some cases, you know, these conventional methods might be necessary, like, you know, thyroid surgery, but everything, in most cases, if not all cases, everything should be done to try to prevent those methods from taking, those procedures from taking place and try to preserve the health of the thyroid gland while improving the health of the immune system. Well said. Now, I know with all conditions, there's not one root cause or one trigger, but I have read about the link between different infections like Yersinia, for example. I've read about some other type of infections that can trigger this Graves. Was that something that was going on for you or what did you end up finding, you know, in yourself or, you know, clinically with with triggers for Graves? Sure, sure. Well, with me, I don't think um, infections were the main cause. Now, I, to be fair, I wasn't, the, I wasn't tested for infections. I was actually working with a natural healthcare professional at the time because when I was diagnosed, uh, I didn't really have much knowledge with Graves. And so, you know, I wasn't told to, to do a stool panel or, you know, do any um, blood testing for, for infections. Um, so, again, maybe it was, but everything else that I did, but in my case, I think stress was a big factor. And we could talk more about infections because that, I think, is a factor, or I know that's a factor with some people and some of my patients. But there is a, a core, with stress, stress, of course, could affect so many different conditions. But with Graves, there's actually research that shows a correlation between stress and Graves' disease. And prior to being diagnosed with Graves' disease, I didn't think stress was a big issue. I thought I... And I knew I dealt with a good amount of chronic stress, but I thought I did a good job of handling the stress. But then once I was diagnosed with Graves' disease, I had a, an adrenal saliva test done, adrenal stress index panel done, and um, realized that that wasn't the case. I had depressed cortisol levels, depressed DHEA, and so it was essentially in a state of uh, so-called adrenal fatigue, even though I didn't really feel fatigued at the time. Um, but I also, would, sometimes that's common because with the hyperthyroidism, the elevated thyroid hormone levels, that increased metabolism, sometimes will offset that. But anyway, that was an eye-opener, and I realized that adrenals were a big issue for me and, you know, definitely a big issue for a big issue for a lot of my patients. So stress, you know, is a, a big trigger. Um, and, uh, you know, stress 
you know, people wonder, well, how can stress be a trigger? You know, but stress can cause dysregulation of the immune system, cause an increase in pro-inflammatory cytokines, which are associated with autoimmune conditions, um, could decrease what's called secretory IgA, which lines the mucosal surfaces of the gastrointestinal tract, and that can make someone more susceptible to infections. Yeah. Um, you know, then, you know, so, and, you know, getting into the infections, yeah, I, I, Yersinia enterocolitica, um, there is a correlation in the literature with Graves as well as Hashimoto's and, and maybe even other conditions, autoimmune conditions, but, I, you know, I can't say that's been the number one infection I've seen. I've seen some cases over the years, not a lot of Yersinia cases. Um, H. pylori has been probably number one, the number one infection, so I, you know, test, um, try to test all my patients um, with Graves for H. pylori. Um, there's a Epstein-Barr, uh, Epstein-Barr virus, uh, more commonly associated with Hashimoto's, um, but there is some evidence that it could also play a role with Graves' disease. Um, so a lot of people test positive for that, even though most of the time it's in the dorm, you know, you could test for the dormant state, like the IgG, compared to the IgM, which is the, the active state of the virus. And most people are in the dormant state, but whether or not that, you know, I mean, that could have been a potential trigger. Sometimes it's hard to tell, if, even if someone tests positive for something, was that the actual trigger? But Epstein-Barr, uh, definitely I, I see that. So let me ask um, you, let me pause you there and ask you about Epstein-Barr. Sure. So you're saying if it is an inactive or a, a dormant stage of Epstein-Barr, that could still potentially at one time could, could have been a trigger. So if you've got that Epstein-Barr in the system, do you have to try to come in and treat that Epstein bar, even if it is dormant, to fix the graves, or how would you, you know, how would you approach that connection? Yeah, well, if someone, so to answer the first the first question, yes, if someone shows up as being, you know, testing for a dormant, you know, like chronic Epstein bar, then it is still possible that could have been the trigger, but maybe it's more, you know, maybe now in a dormant state. Um, you know, but you know, it, it also depends on how long someone has had the condition for. If someone has, has you know, if it's just more of a recent condition, and again, with autoimmunity, it's a little bit tricky, and we were talking about this a little bit because there's that silent autoimmune stage where, you know, someone might have, you know, and most people with autoimmunity, they're going to be, or everybody with autoimmunity will be developing the autoantibodies before they get to overt symptoms. But, you know, if someone has had, Graves' disease or another autoimmune condition for a few years, and they do a test for Epstein-Barr, and it's dormant, you know, it's showing, you know, IgG positive, but IgM as in Mary negative, um, then it's still possible that that could have been a trigger. Um, if it was IgM, then it's active, you know, then, yeah, maybe more likely, but still, maybe not. Maybe it's just, it is possible, it could be a coincidence, but to, to answer your next question is if it is in a dormant state, do you still treat it? And, you know, the, the answer is, you know, well, as you probably know what viruses, you, unlike bacteria and, and yeast like candida, um, you know, I'm, I mean, you can't really eradicate, as far as I know, you can't really eradicate viruses. It's really just trying to put them in a dormant state, but to maintain the health of the immune system, try to have a healthy immune system to keep them in a dormant state. So there, there are, you know, natural and, um, you know, uh, conventional prescription um, antivirals, um, but still that's not, from what I understand, really eradicate or at least completely eradicating the virus because, again, they're within the cells. But, 
Um, but either way, we want to improve the health of the immune system, try to have a healthy gut, because as you know, having a healthy gut will um, help greatly in having a healthy immune system, as well as having healthy adrenals and you know, reducing toxic overload. I mean, all these things will help to improve immune system health. So yeah, regardless, it doesn't change the approach m- much. If someone does have an active viral infection, then, then maybe we'll get a little bit more aggressive and give some antivirals, um, natural antivirals, but um, viral supplements. But um, either way, whether it's dormant or active, we do want to improve the health of the immune system. Okay, well said. Now, what did you do about stress in your personal life? How did you change that? Did you start meditation? Did you just have to change your perception? I mean, if you knew, okay, I'm going to wreck myself with this stress, how did you overcome that? Well, I definitely... uh, And and I know this is a million-dollar question too, right? This is is the heart of the universe right here. So, I mean, you could go anywhere with this. Yeah, well, in my case, perception was definitely a big factor. Just realized that I didn't do a good job of managing stress. And, and like you just said, perception is the key. It's not really the stressor itself. I mean, not that that doesn't play any role, but um, the perception of stress is more important than the actual stressor. Um, so what, yeah, so yeah, I did meditation. What I do now is, and I do this re- religiously every night, is if you're familiar with heart math, um, yes, inner sir. balance um, from heart math. So, so heart math. If uh, visit, um, they actually have a few websites. I get them mixed up. But there's heartmath.com and heartmath.org. But you know, go on Google, visit heart math, and you know they have plenty of information. But they you know, it measures um, something called heart rate variability, which you're probably familiar with, or it sounds like you're familiar with, and that you know you should have variation in between the heartbeats. And so it's really essentially what it comes down to. It's a form of biofeedback, doing some meditation, but it's a, you know, um, giving you, again, some, some feedback in the form of either you could purchase, like I have actually a few programs, like one is on the computer, the M-Wave 2, and then I like, I, I prefer using for my iPhone, the Inner Balance, yeah. which uh, you download an app and then you have a piece that connects to the ear and, you know, pretty much you're doing some deep breathing, but it's giving you feedback um, on the iPhone, you know, the downside, I guess, is that you are relying on the technology. So what I tell my patients, I don't try to push them into heart math. You know, I tell my patients with Graves or, you know, other conditions like Hashimoto's is, I mean, if someone is doing meditation or if they're doing yoga and if they're doing it every day, because I think that's the key or, or one of the big keys is not just doing it three days a week, but doing it every day, even if it's, you know, five, ten minutes a day, um, just doing something on a daily basis. So if someone's doing meditation, yoga, without the technology, that's great. Um, the reason I use heart math is just because it works for me. You know, when I do meditation just on my own, I just, I'm not as strict with it. You know, with inner balance, you know, a lot of it probably is mental, but still I, you know, just like to see that feedback. And so that's what I use. I've been, I, I use, like I said, every night I do the inner balance. Probably should do it more than that. Um, you know, but again, that's the story I think of most people's lives, just trying to find a time. And that's why I tell people just even if you start with five minutes a day, you know, just get into the routine. Perfect. Yeah. And I actually had Howard Martin a couple of years ago of heart math on the show. It blew people's mind away. He taught us that quick coherence technique where you, um, which I covered in a, a YouTube video I did recently too. But like you just sit there and you could just think of somebody you love and then you just re-experience that feeling of love and then boom my M wave will just snap me into the green immediately. It's like, wow. 
That's amazing. Yeah, so, so you, you use HeartMath as well then? Yeah, I do. I actually am, uh, which I guess if I'm putting this onto the podcast, I'm going to have to uh, move forward with it. But I was looking into the program and, you know, getting certified mm-hmm. in that just to make sure. Yeah. Yeah. Just, yeah, that's on my my list as well in the future, you know, to to do that as well. So it's been profound for me. So I've thought, you know, kind of like EFT. I've done a lot of work with EFT, but I'm not certified in EFT. So it's just another mm-hmm. thing to to add in the toolbox. Okay, awesome. Yeah, now, now let me go back to some of these symptoms because I mean, sometimes with Graves, you know, you'll read about rapid heartbeat like you have, but then you'll read about fatigue and weight loss. Now. If you are in that hyperthyroidism state, could you potentially be cold or are you always going to have more of like a heat intolerance and you're going to be more towards like a sweaty, you know, like a sweaty type person? Yeah, usually in most cases, you're going to have the, you know, the, yeah, it will be more. You're going to run hot. A cold feeling. I mean, everybody's different. So I have people with, you know, you always get, you know, a small percentage who defy what. But so so I have people with even with like the weight loss weight gain with most so um, which I'm jumping ahead but with the so to answer your question most people it's not the coldness even though there are some people where still they have hyperthyroidism but yeah they have like cold 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 hands and feet like most people with hypothyroidism do but the same thing with the weight loss and weight gain most people with hyperthyroidism like myself. You know, I lost um, a little bit over 40 pounds when I was dealing with um, hyperthyroidism. Um, but there are some people who gain weight. Again, it's very small percentage. And, you know, sometimes it could be because they're on the antithyroid medication, so that can make you hypothyroid. So if someone has cold hands and feet, but they're taking methimazole, then it could be because now they're more hypo than hyper due to the medication. And the same thing with the weight gain if someone's on the medication that will commonly cause the weight gain but every now and then as someone who's not taking the medication and then they're they're gaining weight um, I mean there could be other issues with weight gain like just inflammation alone as you know can cause weight gain and you know hor- um, imbalances of sex hormones but but yeah on average most people will will not have the cold hands and feet but will have the opposite will be more you know sweaty and you know just uh, yeah an increased perspiration um, and, you know, some will actually, um, you know, call it night sweats. And, again, maybe if someone's in postmenopause, maybe they also have the hyperthyroidism and night sweats. But, you know, if someone is, you know, if you have like a cycling woman or, of course, a man, then, um, you know, again, it's usually attributed more, you know, to the hyperthyroidism and more so than the, horm- the sex hormones. Got it. Okay, so for your patients, are you considering stress, which, I mean, this could be anything, right? This could be infections. This could be immune stress. Oh, by the way, that test uh, we were talking about, that stool test I used, there is a uh, secretory IgA on that too, which is... Oh, all right, cool. Which is awesome. Great. Um, but, yes. you know, when you're working with people, what are the biggest things that you're that you're hitting on? So we hit on stress, which could be like the emotional, but this could also be the chemical part too, right? Because I know you've written about like the impact of GMOs on thyroid health, for example. And then this could be the infection stress, like, you know, gut infections. Um, what do you find? And I know this is a very hard question to answer because it, it's different for everyone. But if you had to take a pie chart and divide up what are the biggest needle movers for people with Graves, what is it? Is it 33% diet, 33% gut, 33% something else? Or how would you break down those, uh, those biggest pieces of the pie? 
Yeah, well, I think with most autoimmune conditions, um, stress and diet are two big pieces, two huge pieces. And that's why you get a lot of people who just make those changes alone, just start blocking out time for stress management, and then just change your diet. Just, you know, start eating whole foods and minimizing refined foods and sugars. And, you know, there's also, you might be familiar with like an autoimmune paleo diet, which I do start a lot of my patients on. Um, but, you know, again, even just getting away from specific diets and just having people eating more whole foods, more vegetables, um, avoiding gluten, avoiding ideally dairy, at least initially. Um, so just, yeah, just trying to manage stress, eating whole foods, um, avoiding common allergens such as gluten, dairy, corn. I mean, those are two big pieces of the puzzle. Um, you know, the, just like you, we do other things as well. So sometimes it's hard to pinpoint because we're not just making those changes, um, but everybody makes those changes, or at least I recommend for everybody to make changes with stress and diet. So we know those are two key factors. And then, um, you know, toxins. I, I have a lot of my patients do things for detoxification, um, you know, like follow a liver detox or take, um, you know, supplements such as NAC, N-acetylcysteine, which is a precursor to glutathione, which is important for um, supporting the detoxification pathways. And then, again, diet, you know, just making sure they're eating plenty of vegetables, um, dark green leafy vegetables and cruciferous to, you know, help also to support detoxification, um, drink plenty of water. Um, so, again, some of it is, the, you know, the basics. And then, yeah, I mean, infections, you know, I, I can't say I do comprehensive testing on everybody. I think uh, I was listening to, um, you know, to some of your um, podcasts, and I think you do, you do stool pa t panel testing on everybody? Yeah, that's the goal, unless financially yeah. we have to prioritize something else. But, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, see, and with me, I've ne not that I never do. I, I do stool panel testing, but I've never done it, like, across, like, adrenal saliva testing I do with everybody across the board. You know, stool testing, um, and again, maybe with the new lab that you mentioned, maybe, you know, maybe things will change. But, you know, just, uh, again, I can't say that when I do stool testing that most people come out positive for, you know, like pathogenic bacteria or, um, you know, parasites. You know, most people, in fact, come out negative. And then I, I find for um, Candida, actually, a better test, which we were also chatting about, to be the organic acids test compared to the stool panel. Um, you know, so, but yeah, a, a lot of people do have candida, which whether or not that's a trigger, you know, is still controversial. It does seem to increase intestinal permeability, you know, cause a leaky gut, and that's a, a factor with autoimmunity. Um, so, but yeah, as far as infections, you know, I mentioned H. pylori. I, that is one I do test um, people for. Um, but yeah, as far as you know, and then the you know the blood testing also. I do. I don't test everybody for for viruses like Epstein Barr. I did mention that, but um, you know, so I can't say that infections are necessarily a huge part of what I've seen. But again, we do other. We, you know, we do so many things, and you know, some of the things that we're we're doing also can even you know can make. How could I put it like there, you know, if someone has a specific infection like H. pylori, yeah, they, they chances are they'll need um, to be on a certain, you know, protocol to help with infection. But there, you know, there's some cases where maybe someone does have like a mild infection and just improving the health of the immune system will help, you know, with the, you know, without the person taking antimicrobials. But, 
you know, someone has um, SIBO, which is not really an infection, but an overgrowth of good bacteria, again, you know, just changing the diet and, you know, managing stress probably isn't going to really help with something like that. Um, but I'm straying. I tend to stray during these interviews from, <laughs> but um, getting back to the triggers, you know, so stress and diet are, are real big. You know, I think, uh, again, I have a lot of people do things for detoxification, whether or not toxins, you know, like, um, you know, mercury, bisphenol A, I mean, those, there's definitely correlations between those and thyroid health, uh, maybe not specifically Graves, um, mercury more linked to, to Hashimoto's, and that's something else we could talk about, because mercury, you know, again, that could be a potential trigger, um, and I do things for detoxification, but I can't say I have all my patients, uh, you know, take out their silver fillings. Now, um, it's not a bad idea to eventually do that, um, but, you know, if someone has, and I don't know what your approach is uh, when it comes to the, you know, mercury amalgams, you know, I, I think we both agree that if we could go back in time, it would be a good idea for people not to get the mercury amalgams. You know, if someone comes in and they have, let's say, like five or six mercury amalgams, you know, and, and you know, of course, that's something I'll ask about, and, yeah, it's something ultimately they want to get removed, but there's, you know, risks of if you do get that removed, you definitely want to see a biological dentist um, to get you know, the, the mercury amalgams removed. But there's, you know, even so, there's, you know, obviously there's a cost involved, which some people don't want to pay initially, you know, um, and then, you know, there are still risks um, of getting the mercury removed. So it's one of those risk versus benefits. And ultimately the, you know, benefits, you know, outweigh the risks because, you know, ideally you don't want to have mercury for the rest of your life, and especially if that is uh, the trigger. But, but um, anyway, so you could stop me when, because like I say, I have a, you know, have a tendency to ramble, but just trying to give people a, you know, different idea of some of the, you know, different triggers, but, and what, you know, I've seen in some of my patients. But, but again, the research, you know, like I said, or should I say it this way, the lack of research, like, the lack of studies which show that, you know, there's so many different toxins out there, you know, tens of thousands of new chemicals, and the lack of research doesn't mean that some of these chemicals aren't responsible, you know, for the, you know, the development of autoimmune conditions such as Graves' disease, which is why, you know, I'm a big fan of detoxification, you know, and, um, you know, so, and anyway, so I'll, I'll be quiet a little bit, let you, uh, you know, talk or give your, some of your feedback as well. No, you've done great. I mean, the rambling is much welcomed because it, 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 that's where the gold comes out. Trust me, you're, you know, you're coming up on, uh, you'll be something close to my 240th or 250th interview. So that's, that's where the gold comes out. Now, um, I know we got to wrap this up shortly, but if somebody were wanting to get their thyroid investigated, what labs would be the top one? So we hit on TSH, we hit on free T3, we hit on free T4, we hit on the TSI, we hit on the TPO antibodies a little bit. We hit on the thyroglobulin, the TG antibodies a little bit. Are there other ones that I forgot? Well, specific for Graves, those are the main ones. You know, you want to, yeah, do a thyroid panel, look at the antibodies, and again, not this, just thyroid-stimulating immunoglobulins, but, you know, also a lot of people with Graves do have antibodies for Hashimoto's, like thyroid peroxidase and thyroglobulin antibodies, so not a bad idea to get those tested. And then I always recommend doing the basics, like a CBC, you know, complete blood count with differential, because that, 
you know, that could give some ideas with infections. You know, it's obviously different than a stool panel, but if someone comes back with depressed white blood cells, um, I mentioned earlier how methimazole can cause that potentially, but if someone's not taking methimazole or if they had it before even taking the methimazole, if we look at some of the past CBCs, if they had that, um, or if they had, you know, elevated lymphocytes, maybe that is a, a viral infection or elevated eosinophils, maybe it's a parasitic infection. Um, so you could get a lot of information with the CBC, um, and that was just talk about maybe infections. There's also other markers too, you know, anemia. And, but um, uh, metabolic panel, comprehensive metabolic panel, I think everybody should get, especially if they're taking methimazole. And this is a, a mistake that some endocrinologists make is that they – They'll have, uh, this isn't the case with most. Most endocrinologists will have their patients who are taking methimazole do a metabolic panel, but um, sometimes they won't. And again, that's the only way to know if the uh, methimazole is raising the liver enzymes. Um, some people will have elevator enzymes with the hyperthyroidism alone, even without taking the methimazole. Um, and alkaline phosphatase will usually be elevated. Um, and then you know, so the, again, the CRP, like um, C-reactive protein, which is an inflammatory marker, and so uh, no, and vit oh, vitamin D. Can't forget about vitamin D, as in David. Um, that's uh, in order to have a healthy immune system, you need to have healthy vitamin D levels. Um, so I have vitamin. Everybody tests for vitamin D. Um, you know, B12, which you know, doing serum B12. I do serum B12, but also methylmalonic acid is another way of looking at that. Um, you know, so blood tests, uh, and not that I focus just on blood tests, but, you know, I, as I mentioned, also do saliva testing, um, adrenal saliva testing, um, stool panel. Again, maybe I'll do it more regularly with this um, other lab you mentioned, but, um, I, you know, again, I, I'll do it with some patients. And I do, I do love stool testing, not, not collecting <laughs> stool samples, but, um, on my own, you know, and I'm sure my patients would agree, but... Um, as far as it does provide a lot of valuable information, but again, just um, don't, you know, you got to, again, weigh, well, you know, just if someone's going to spend that type of money, uh, but, you know, and if it, but anyway, so I kind of touched upon that. Um, I think it has value, um, but um, like I said, I just, I haven't seen a lot, but I'll, I'll, I'll say one story here, which is a good story with the stool panel and might encourage people to do more stool panels and, you know, again, just, after this, you might ask me, well, why don't I do more stool panels? But I did have one person um, in the past who um, he was getting actually pretty good results. Um, so he has Graves, um, had Graves' disease and, you know, ele so elevated thyroid stimulating immunoglobulins and, you know, was really doing well, following the diet, following my recommendation, taking the supplements I recommended. And he was, again, his thyroid panel was improving Everything was was improving, but his antibodies weren't going down. His antibodies remained high, and we did you know all types of testing. But and you know again, this was a few years ago, and this and he wasn't having any signs. Not that, not that you could go by symptoms alone. That's one lesson. But he wasn't experiencing any gastrointestinal symptoms. Um, he also didn't have any. Like, as far as I remember, like, as far as traveling, like, that, anything that would indicate parasitic infections. Um, so I really didn't see the need for him to do a stool panel. 
you know, just um, I was, you know, just telling them, yeah, I've done stool panels in the past. They would be negative um, in most cases, and especially with you, you're not having any digestive symptoms. Really, no indication of, you know, any path, you know, any gut infection. Um, so he told me he was upfront. He said, well, if I'm going to get another opinion, so he went to another natural healthcare professional. Sure enough, the other doctor did a stool panel and picked up a parasite. Um, eradicated the parasite, and he went into remission. You know, the antibodies normalized. Um, you know, and the only reason I found that out is because I emailed him, you know, like six months later um, just to see how he was doing, and he, you know, let me know. And so it did teach me a lesson. So now I at least, in most cases, I'll at least give the option. I'll at least bring up the stool panel, and, and definitely if someone, and, and there are some cases when I will recommend a stool panel up front, um, but if I don't, and if someone's not progressing, I'm not going to tell the person, you know, yeah, I don't, you know, I'm not going to make the same mistake. So I will, you know, um, get more aggressive with the testing. But again, that's, so that's an example of someone who didn't present with any symptoms. And that's a, a good lesson because you can't always go by symptoms when it comes to doing certain types of testing. Right, right. Well said. Well, we'll send people back to your website, naturalendocrinesolutions.com. You've got a wealth of articles, so I'm going to be digging into more of these articles, and I really appreciate your your feedback and digging into this stuff with me. This was a blast, and uh, people could check out your Facebook page, too. You're over there. Any, any other things people should check out? Looks like you've got a six-step guide on reversing Graves and Hashimoto's, uh, it's kind of like your opt-in gift on your website too. Exactly. So there's a free guide that you can get on my website, as you mentioned, naturalendocrinesolutions.com. And then on Amazon, for those with hyperthyroidism and Graves disease, I do have uh, a book, uh, Natural Treatment Solutions for Hyperthyroidism and Graves Disease. Um, so that's on Amazon. And yeah, as you mentioned, a, a Facebook page as well. So yes, um, so any, any of those. <laughs> Perfect. Well, great chatting with you. I'd love to have you back again. We'll stay in touch with each other. Yeah, definitely. Thank you, Evan. I appreciate you again um, um, having me, inviting me on this podcast, and uh, look forward to um, um, being on the podcast again in the future. Thanks yes, again. Take care, Eric. Bye-bye. All right. You too, Evan. Bye now. Bye. All right. I hope you enjoyed that show. Thanks so much for tuning in. I know you probably won't do it because out of 6 million downloads of this show, only about 200-ish people have left a review, but if you would review the show on iTunes, it means the world to me, and that allows me to get higher and higher and higher in the iTunes rankings, which therefore increases the awareness about these topics. You're not hearing a top 10 health podcast talk about Graves' disease, and if you are, who knows if it's the right approach? Who knows if it's the functional medicine lens applied to that topic? So if you go on your app store, on your phone, if you're using an iPhone, you go to the iTunes app or the podcast app, and you're on my podcast, you just click write a review, and you can do the same thing on your computer, PC, Mac, if you're on the iTunes app, type in Evan Brand, navigate to the show, you click write a review, I'm going to be doing a giveaway, I'm not going to announce what it is yet, but it's a really good giveaway, I promise, over the next three to four weeks here. I'm just going to pick somebody who randomly reviews the show. So if you're one of three, then, hey, you've got a 33% chance of winning some cool stuff. So anyhow, I'll chat with you again next week. If you are interested in a 15-minute free call with myself to talk about your thyroid or other health symptoms, this is stuff I deal with every single day in the clinic. I'd be happy to help you out. You can just go to my website, notjustpaleo.com. You'll see the button for that free consult. All right. Take care. Bye-bye.